Hello and welcome to another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Gastola. Uh, my co-host, Rania Kalik, is taking the week off. So I'm just here to bring you a, a special interview. Uh, every week's a special interview, but I have as my guest, Jessalyn Raddick, who is uh, the National Security and Human Rights Division Director for the Government Accountability Project. She's also one of Edward Snowden's lawyers. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And uh, I will say that we're talking to you in Australia, um, and you've been there uh, doing some work. Uh, And to begin this interview, uh, I would like to see if you could just provide people who are listening uh, some kind of an update on what's happening with Edward Snowden. Well, right now, uh, Russia has indicated a number of times over the past month that it would be happy to see him remain. And at this point, we're just waiting for his asylum paperwork to be processed. And uh, this week was the uh, one-year anniversary of Chelsea Manning's conviction. And I was just wondering if you could take a moment. I mean, on one hand, I find it ironic the It'll always be that in history, uh, she was uh, convicted on the day that the Senate designated as National Whistleblower Appreciation Day. So I don't know if you have anything uh, to say to that. Yeah, that's a a bitter irony that apparently has lost on Congress, as there are so many important lessons from uh, from Chelsea's case. Um, It's sad to me that... Um, So much of her case still remains in the dark from the American public, despite the amazing um, reporting done by Alexa O'Brien and yourself and others from what was a very closed court martial in a number of ways. Um, And it's sad to me that as, um, you know, like a number of other whistleblowers prosecuted for espionage by President Obama, she's serving a stiff 35-year sentence while people who committed war crimes torture um, are out free. But then I was also wondering if you'd have anything to add about, you know, what what we've been able to learn from her case. Uh, I mean, I know that Snowden has uh, taken some lessons based off of the way that her case was handled, and those are lessons he's relying upon as he continues to do what he's doing uh, in Russia. Absolutely. Um, Snowden watched the case of Chelsea Manning and of Thomas Drake very closely in deciding how to go about blowing the whistle um, and saw how Chelsea Manning had been held in solitary confinement for nine months and tortured and how Tom Drake had gone through all conceivable internal channels. And so the decision to blow the whistle from outside the country um, was very much informed by um, watching what happened to Chelsea. Um, so I think there are a lot of important lessons. I mean, that was one of them that Snowden took away. But also, um, Snowden followed in Chelsea's footsteps in terms of doing a mass digital data um, disclosure, which is something that will always be Chelsea's legacy in U.S. history. What about the Espionage Act and uh, the value or the, or, the, or the potential necessity of this appeal that's going to be coming to, to take on uh, this law? And then, I guess, the effect 
it could have on Snowden's case. Uh, right. Well, certainly the Espionage Act has been the Achilles heel in the witch hunt against prosecutors, I mean, against whistleblowers. And um, the same Espionage Act under which Chelsea Manning was charged, um, uh, Snowden has also been charged. Um, and I think an appeal by Chelsea could only help, I would hope, in the case of Edward Snowden, um, if it were determined appropriately that this law was meant to go after spies and not whistleblowers and is also a form of over-prosecution and facially is vague and overbroad constitutionally. Um, so I hope some of those issues could um, be determined on a, a appeal in a way that would benefit Snowden. Right now, Snowden is not going to come back to the U.S. to face an espionage act prosecution because there simply is no public defense, um, public interest defense available. So all of the people out there saying, come home and face the music and just tell your story to a jury of your peers have a very romanticized notion of what an American trial is supposed to look like. And what we've learned from Chelsea Manning's case is that these Espionage Act prosecutions are very locked down, and it's very difficult for the public to glean what's going on because so much of it is done behind closed doors in secret. And particularly, you know, when we're talking about this law, I just want to make sure that everyone who's listening to us uh, understands that we're talking about how it's being used uh, because it wasn't always used against people who were leakers. Uh, that's correct. So they've turned it into this thing where you can prosecute somebody and their intent for disclosure doesn't matter. That's exactly right. In fact, the first whistleblower this law was used against was Daniel Ellsberg, who had disclosed the Pentagon Papers, and he's seen as a patriarch of whistleblowing and quite celebrated in the U.S. Um, but then Tom Drake became the first whistleblower after Daniel Ellsberg to be indicted under this law 40 years later, followed by Chelsea Ganning and a number of other people. And again, this is a law that should be used to go after spies, not whistleblowers. And one of the big problems under the law is that your intent is irrelevant. So whether you planned on selling secrets to our enemies for profit or whether you planned on giving information back to your own citizenry so they can make informed decisions uh, about what the government's been doing in their name behind their backs um, is completely irrelevant. It's a strict liability offense. And therefore, you can't come back and make your case that you had salutary motives. Uh, now, I'd like to pivot just a little bit, although it's all connected, and talk about this report that was put out by Human Rights Watch and the ACLU this week. And I, I don't know how much you've got a chance to look at it, but I guess just basically, I, I mean, could, could you broadly comment on how the, the stuff that you've worked with in defending whistleblowers has this connection to uh, being used against journalism. And then also, I mean, um, you know, this report was specifically looking at surveillance and how uh, this is being used to intercept communications of journalists. And you've also got surveillance intercepting the communications of lawyers. And, and I guess what that means to 
all this work that is being done around whistleblowers? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think I am mentioned in this report um, because of my interrogation at Heathrow in connection with representing Edward Snowden. Um, I can certainly say that um, this has been an underlooked um, issue by the public at large, and the surveillance on journalists and lawyers has been incredibly corrosive. As a lawyer, I have to do my job completely differently than I ordinarily would. I have to meet sources in person. I don't send important stuff um, and documents over the internet. I function in a highly encrypted environment. Um, I pay in cash when I meet with clients. I take crypto phones. I um, engage in a number of evasive measures to try to avoid government surveillance, um, specifically um, obviously in the representation of Edward Snowden, where the government is, is desperate for information. Um, but I've heard very little outcry from groups, for example, like the American Bar Association, um, about the fact that there is no carve-out in mass domestic surveillance. There's no special carve-out for journalists. There's no special exception for attorneys speaking to clients or doctors speaking to patients. And the idea that these communications are being surveilled certainly dampens the ability of journalists to do their jobs as they traditionally have and um, of lawyers too, especially those doing human rights law or representing people that the government does not like. Um, and there have been examples of this kind of surveillance in the courtroom where microphones have gone out and gone back on and where um, in the Guantanamo procedure certain things have been recorded um, apparently by the CIA. There's been that kind of surveillance, but the more pervasive surveillance of the government scooping up um, every possible bit of information that might be um, said, typed, um, communicated, written, text, emailed, uh, between journalists and sources and between attorneys and clients completely erodes the trust and the relationship that is necessary in order for those professions to function properly. Um, so I'm really grateful that Human Rights Watch and the American Civil Liberties Union both are very appropriate groups to do a report like this. I don't see most people looking at this necessarily as a human rights issue, but it really is. Um, so I'm grateful based on this report, and I hope it gets a lot of, I hope it gets a lot of oxygen um, now that it's out there, and I hope even more significantly that there can be reforms um, based on this report so that people can do their jobs safely. Well, I know that the Committee to Protect Journalists had done a report on the Obama administration and the press and had made this connection between leak investigations and surveillance uh, and how those impact press freedom and the ability to do in investigative journalism. It seems like this report was really uh, a good contribution to our understanding because it recognized a lot of the specifics that we know from Snowden and those concrete specifics take 
our, I guess, paranoia about what the government might doing into uh, a confirmed reality. Is that, is that sort of how you view the report? Yes, absolutely. I mean, these things can seem very abstract. Surveillance in general can seem like a very abstract uh, concept to most people, and it doesn't feel personalized. So the more specific examples that are given, the better about how people change their behavior and change how they do their jobs and change how they uh, go about protecting sources. And I've always said that the leak investigations under Obama have very much been bound up with the war on journalists, that the war on whistleblowers, in other words, is a backdoor to the um, war on journalists. Journalists appear in every single leak indictment brought by the Obama administration, and it's come close to journalists being called in some of these cases. Um, and we're actually going to see that come to fruition, unfortunately. Um, in the case of Jim Risen, New York Times reporter, um, possibly having to choose between testifying against a source or going to jail in yet another quote-unquote leak investigation of a whistleblower named Jeffrey Sterling from the CIA. And the report definitely does, you know, raise the issue, I guess, uh, I mean, you, you represent whistleblowers who I would think most of the time uh, may be working in, in other ways to challenge the, the retaliation or, or, or to bring to light uh, the misconduct and illegality that they want to make public and, and not necessarily involving the press. Uh, however, you know, with cases like Fox New, former Fox News reporter James Rosen, who, you know, had all his communications pretty much, uh, you know, seized and uh, looked over, uh, and it, it would seem that that's uh, a big deal and, and would discourage a lot of people who are whistleblowers from going to the press. I agree. Um, that kind of action has an incredibly chilling effect. And what was even more significant about the James Rosen search warrant is that they actually accused him, a journalist, of being a co-conspirator um, with a source. And that's a completely messed up um, paradigm to be using to start accusing. We've seen... Um, We've seen suggestions of this um, vis-a-vis Glenn Greenwald that somehow he's aiding and abetting or conspiring with Snowden. And when you start to put those criminal words on a journalist just doing their job, we've entered an incredibly dangerous territory and one that's specifically prohibited by the First Amendment of our Constitution because our founding fathers realized how important a free press is to a functioning democracy. So when we have seen journalism criminalized by the subpoena of 23 AP reporters or by the search warrant on James Rosen or the subpoena against Jim Risen, um, it creates a really ugly um, picture and a really scary specter of things that can dampen reporting and certainly chills a lot of journalists from doing a robust job, especially those trying to do vigorous investigative and activist journalism, as well as chill sources um, from from reaching out to journalists for fear of getting caught. 
And then one more thing just on this before I, I move to the some final topics I want to talk about before we wrap our interview. Uh, one of the things that's remarkable in the Human Rights Watch and ACLU report is how it describes these journalists and, and I guess even lawyers behaving like spies. And in, and, and in particular, I remember a lot of the quotes from, from the journalists who were surveyed saying that behaving like spies has in some cases actually alienated the sources they wanted to talk to. In other words, they got frightened and weren't sure if they wanted to proceed with this sort of uh, conduct or you know, engage with the journalists. Uh, I'm wondering if in, in your work you've had this experience as a lawyer with people you know, worrying um, that this was this, some kind of shady conduct you were going to be trying to get them to engage in. Well, I think there's that aspect of it, of clients or sources worrying that um, by using protective mechanisms, um, somehow they're doing something shadowy. Um, but I think the other side of it is that the government has said when people are using encryption, um, whether it happens to be the journalists and lawyers or whether it happens to be sources or clients, that that's going to get some level of higher scrutiny and be seen as somehow suspect. So it really, people just trying to protect themselves against a surveillance state ends up hurting on both ends of the equation because clients and sources get get scared and, and apprehensive. Um, and because the government, again, says that oh, somehow just by protecting yourself, um, you automatically must be trying to hide something. Uh, so uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the CIA, and I guess I'll begin with the stuff that you know you you work with, which is the fact that there was a report uh, in the last week about whistleblower communications being intercepted. Um, and I just I guess in general, I mean, what what kind of concern or, or reaction did might you have to that story? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's every whistleblower's worst nightmare that their protected disclosures are intercepted um, by the government. Um, and again, it shows how weak and how bad and how little the government cares about whistleblowers' protection. Um, and then at the same time, it's just stunning that the government can intercept whistleblower disclosures or can spy on CIA, and that that uh, really raises nothing more than a tongue lashing from, uh, you know, from Dianne Feinstein or an, a, a little thumb-sucking apology from the CIA. Um, yeah, and then in particular, it's, I mean, I know uh, John Kiriakou, the former CIA officer who, who became a, a whistleblower on this, it's it must be remarkable to see all of this unfolding, uh, given the way that you had helped him with his case, uh, because you've got people now who are, you know, they're trying to defend the torture. Uh, you've got John Brennan thinking of plotting to defend this. Uh, and then I'd say that, you know, the interception of the whistleblower communication at CIA was uh, in, in relation to uh, an employee who was helping with the Senate Intelligence Committee's production of this report. So um, it all just seems to be rather troubling. I agree. I think John Kiriakou's case puts the Senate report in such stark relief 
because here you have a whistleblower who exposed the fact that the U.S. had a torture program and that the U.S. had used waterboarding as a technique in its arsenal of quote-unquote enhanced interrogation techniques. Um, and then at the same time, we see that the director of the CIA spied on Congress and that the CIA has intercepted whistleblower protected disclosures by people trying to help with the intel investigation into this dastardly practice. Um, and that is marked with an immediate statement that the Justice Department's not going to investigate and an immediate statement from the executive branch that the president is going to stand by his man. It's the front page in the New York Times today um, that Obama has every confidence in um, Director Brennan. Um, and it really just shows what a scandal, even today, almost a decade after the torture program, more than a decade after the torture program was instituted, um, how no one has been held accountable. I mean, you would think after CIA officers who directed, engaged in, ordered, um, and, and repeated this conduct were let off the hook through President Obama's look forward, not backwards policy, that uh, they would give a little bit in terms of at least letting the truth and facts of history be exposed. But instead, you have someone like John Kiriakou, who, if he had actually tortured someone, would not be in jail today. You have John in jail while everyone at the highest level suffers no impunity at all or even any form of accountability, punitive or otherwise. Um, we're just not letting the facts see the light of day. Um, and supposedly the CIA has given the Senate Intel Committee a, a copy of an unclassified copy of the report it can release, but I assume that will be highly redacted. So we still don't have the full truth of what happened or even anything approximating the truth, and we see valiant efforts on the part of the government to clamp down on this. And then when the CIA tries to protect its turf in a way that should really be a constitutional crisis when you have the CIA spying on a Senate Intelligence Committee, this is Marbury versus Madison kind of stuff that people should be reading about in law school. And instead, we get nothing but a whimper the government and a little you know, baby apology from the CIA director, a shucks, I'm sorry, and um, the president saying, well, people, um, and how dismissive that is historically and how historically myopic that is to treat such a serious subject with such disdain. And then uh, I wanted you to comment because there's this lesser known program that has been instituted since WikiLeaks, um, and it's probably being expanded because of Snowden. Um, and it's the insider threat program, and it appears that this is what uh, the sort of technology or the, the way they go about um, going through systems to, to monitor communications. It's, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised to learn that they were using the same sort of technology to get into the Senate's computers and the same sort of technology is what they seem to be using to intercept whistleblower communications. 
So I think there's a lot of people who don't really know about this program. There's a lot of people who don't really seem to be concerned about this program. And I was, wanted you to take a few minutes just to, to share, you know, anything you have to say about it. Sure. I would urge all of your listeners to Google United States Department of Agriculture, USDA, Insider Threat Program. Um, it would be laughable if it weren't actually published on a government website with uh, some, some form of legitimacy and, in their view, all seriousness. It has literally a cartoon-drawn slide-by-slide uh, -slide pictorial on how to detect and spy on your fellow colleague and how to determine whether or not that person might be engaged in spy-like activities. Now, the number of inside threats that we have actually discovered in the United States um, can be counted on a single hand, yet this is a very corrosive program that numerous federal agencies are instituting to try to get employees to rat each other out if they even say something of a divergent view that's a symbol or a symptom of someone who's an insider threat, someone who can't get along, someone who is critical, someone who's not a quote-unquote team player. It really discourages any kind of dissent, but more than that, it tries to elevate dissent into some sort of terrorist threat um, or um, some sort of spy-like activity such as espionage. Um, so it is really a scary program. It reminds me of the Stasi in East Germany when they had some, you know, quarter of the population agreeing to spy on each other. They had a quarter of the population cooperating with the government to spy on other people, including their own family members. Um, so I think it's this really pernicious program that's been set up. Why is it... Um, being, being tested in the Department of Agriculture as a primary site to begin with um, is, is beyond me, but I guess it just goes to show that the seriousness of this program, yet the cartoonish um, nature with which it's um, being handled. Um, and it really, I think, deters whistleblowing and deters anyone from even disagreeing with something at work, even if they're not blowing the whistle on anything wrong, even if they just disagree with the party line. Well, speaking of the Stasi or, or people who seem like individuals who would fit in in the Stasi, uh, former NSA director Keith Alexander has been apparently going to companies and trying to uh, sell uh, his uh, expertise and, and knowledge of how to thwart hackers to these companies. And he, he, he wants to charge them, uh, you know, in the upwards of, of, of millions of millions of dollars a year, it would seem, to purchase uh, his knowledge. Uh, now, his knowledge would seem to come from what he knows about classified operations. Uh, classified information would be probably involved in whatever he shared with these companies. I just was wondering if you had anything to say about this, given the fact that people would be so outraged if this is what Edward Snowden was doing with companies. Yes, absolutely. I find it incredible that um, Keith Alexander can sell secrets and is free to make a huge profit 
without being slammed with espionage act charges, and Snowden is stateless. Um, if Snowden tried to do this, he would be accused, and rightfully so, of, you know, of capitalizing on U.S. secrets um, and selling them to anybody. We don't know who Keith Alexander is selling them to um, for money and to make money. Um, yet he returned secrets about what the U.S. has been doing. He revealed those and exposed those um, to journalists. Uh, so that they could make this information available to to individuals in the citizenry of the United States. And yet, he is under criminal charge. He's been exiled. He is stateless in Russia, awaiting some sort of renewal of asylum or other ability to stay there, um, and can't come back home to the United States or actually go anywhere in Western Europe. Um, because of the threat from the United States. And meanwhile, Keith Alexander, like so many of the other senior people in the NSA and in the government intelligence apparatus, finished their stint in government and are cashing in and making loads of money. And again, Keith Alexander is the one who lied to Congress um, about these programs having thwarted 54 terrorist plots um, when it turned out he later testified they had thwarted maybe one that could have been thwarted through other law enforcement means. So not only has he been let off the hook criminally for lying to the public, now he gets to profit from the very programs that were such a carefully guarded secret. And my final question, uh, and thank you for letting me interview you. I, I know you're, you've been busy in Australia. And my, fi my final question is, is actually... Uh, since you are in Australia, uh, there's been, you know, rumblings, and, and I've been seeing news stories come out about WikiLeaks releasing this, you know, this suppression, the secret suppression order, and, and I've seen some stuff about how Australia wants to uh, criminalize spy leaks. So I was just wondering, just for people who probably don't know a whole lot about the terrain in Australia, what sort of things are you, are you, um, you know, finding out? about uh, what their government wants to do, and, and what is this thing about the secret suppression order? Well, one of the reasons I'm here in Australia is to speak out against the new proposed law of the Attorney General George Brandis here, who has a law with very worrisome problems that would basically turn journalists into criminals. For example, if you're a journalist, and a source comes to you with a story that includes some information about a, and this is a language of art, a so-called special intelligence operation, which is not defined. And maybe that story is about AZO doing something illegal. That would be the Australian version of NSA. Um, that's legitimately something the public should know. But under the new law, if you publish that, or even tell anyone, such as your editor or your producer, that can mean up to 10 years in prison. And the wording of the proposed law is so broad, it would be easy to claim virtually any secret information had some impact on a special intelligence operation. And it presents a serious curtailment on freedom of the press. Um, I'm, I've been urging Australia not to do what the U.S. has been doing in terms of moving towards criminalizing journalism 
not to follow our example because we've seen where this goes and it's very ugly. And while uh, we don't have a law, uh, we have espionage, which criminalizes uh, disclosure of national defense information, which again is as nebulous as the special intelligence operation language in the Australian version of the law. Thank you for uh, giving us your time, and uh, and good luck uh, with the rest of your trip in Australia. Great. Thank you, Kevin. Bye-bye. So, uh, Dan, my next question is for you. Um, oftentimes, uh, Ed's biggest critics often uh, invoke your name. And they invoke it in a positive way and try to contrast what you did to with what Edward did. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? How does that make you feel? Um, do you agree with them? Do you disagree with them? The, the most recent was actually Secretary of State John Kerry, uh, who said that, that you were a hero, but uh, uh, Ed was, was not. And so mm-hmm. can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. Well, this bullshit, in a way, started with uh, Barack Obama. <laughs> Uh, when somebody uh, actually took the occasion to ask him about Manning uh, at a, at here in San Francisco, I was going to say here where I come from, in San Francisco, uh, and said, well, didn't uh, Chelsea Manning, then Bradley, uh, do exactly what Ellsberg did? You know, and uh, with, with, well, he could have answered that various ways. What he said was, uh, Ellsberg's material was classified in a different manner. Well... That was true in a way. Whatever, what, as I mentioned earlier, everything that Manning put out was secret or less, and everything I put out was top secret. That was the difference. <laughs> and uh, I think the person asking the question didn't pursue that. Uh, and of course, in your case, um, we'll, I'll come back to that, but in your case, higher than top secret, you know, the communications intelligence stuff, which I would earlier have said. Um, didn't deserve to be put out until you see what it says. And then you see it's evidence of criminality and should not be subject to uh, criminal prosecution for revealing it, even though it is higher than top secret. So since then, that was with Manning. And I found then, that was starting in 2010, that thanks to Manning and now to you, I'm getting more favorable publicity uh, than in, <laughs> in, in 40 years, 40 years. <laughs> Uh, because suddenly people who were all for putting me in prison for life before now realize that I was really a very good guy. I was the, I was the good whistleblower. And so I'm, I'm totally, of course, rejected this from the beginning. I didn't want to be a foil for, for uh, showing up badly to people that I totally admired you know, and, and identified with. Because there have been lots of leakers, uh, whistleblowers, and I appreciate them all, ones who put out information that should have been known. They're anonymous. I don't know their names on the whole. But the difference here uh, to me with Manning and you was that each showed very clearly, as I had felt 40 years ago, a willingness to put out enough material that was going to really be serious, put us in prison for life. That was Dan Ellsberg, the Pentagon Papers whistleblower, and he was having his conversation with NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden. Uh, You can watch and uh, hear the entire conversation that happened at HOPEX, the Hackers on Planet Earth 10th conference 
which was held in New York City a few weeks ago. You can go to YouTube and watch this. It went on for over an hour, and it was quite the historic conversation. I thought it would be appropriate to play a clip so you can hear uh, some of what was said, and I thought it was very appropriate for the subject matter of this episode. But now I would like to shift here to uh, wrapping up the show. There's really no discussion segment this week because Rania Kalik has taken the week off. But uh, as I've mentioned before in a couple previous podcasts, we wanted to get into the habit of highlighting a political case every week. And we wanted to get into the habit of highlighting a campaign, a way that you could engage, take action, help cause if it's something that you wanted to do. It just so happens that uh, we're able to do this uh, feature this week by highlighting one single case and in relation to this case, uh, offer an opportunity for you to help this individual. The name is uh, Dr. Rafael Dafir, and he is a doctor who is currently imprisoned in uh, solitary confinement in a federal medical center. Dr. DeFear's case was highlighted by Project Salam, which is the support and legal advocacy for Muslims, and the National Coalition to Protect Civil Freedoms, uh, when they put out this study called Inventing Terrorists, the Lawfare of Preemptive Prosecution earlier this year. And I'll take a moment to read their description of his case in the report. Now, these are attorneys who represent clients similar to DeFear. They are accused of committing terrorism-related offenses, but the lawyers take up these cases because they believe that they are, po- they are political cases. They are, the government is not going after these people with clear evidence of crimes. The government is going after them because of their political activities, their political beliefs, or their religious beliefs. And so, Dr. Rafael DeFear was born in Iraq and naturalized as an American citizen. He is a highly regarded oncologist from Syracuse, New York, who became concerned about the humanitarian catastrophe created by the Gulf War and the UN sanctions imposed on Iraq throughout the 1990s. In direct response to this catastrophe, DeFear founded the Help the Needy charity in 1990 and for 13 years worked tirelessly to help publicize the plight of the Iraqi people and to raise funds to help them. According to the U.S. government, DeFear donated $1.4 million of his own money over the years. As an oncologist, he was particularly concerned about the effects of depleted uranium on the Iraqi population, which was experiencing skyrocketing cancer rates. In 2003, and conveniently a few weeks before the U.S. invasion of Iraq, DeFear was arrested. Attorney General John Ashcroft announced that, quote-unquote, funders of terrorism had been apprehended. On that same day, 150 local Muslim families were interrogated 
because they had donated to his charity. However, no charges of terrorism were ever brought against Afir. Instead, he was charged with violating the Iraqi embargo and was held without bail for 19 months until his trial in October 2004. When Defeer refused to accept a plea agreement, 25 additional charges of Medicare fraud were added. Medicare fraud usually involves fictitious patients and non-existent treatments. Defeer's case had none of this. The government denied that, the, that his patients received appropriate care, treatment, and medicines. Rather, it claimed that because Defeer was sometimes not present in his office when patients were treated, Medicare forms were not filled out correctly to reflect the treatment by someone else. Illogically, the government argued that if the forms were not correctly filled out, Defeer was not entitled to any reimbursement for treatments actually given or for the expensive chemotherapy his office had actually administered, and so he was guilty of Medicare fraud. In fact, this is according to the group's who put together this report, Defeer is a very compassionate man, treated people without health insurance, and paid for medicine for those who could not afford it out of his own pocket. Other companies violated the Iraq embargo and were merely told by the U.S. government to stop. Other doctors ran into trouble trying to bill under the confusing Medicare formula and were merely told to straighten out their billing. But Defeer was prosecuted as though he were a career criminal. After he was convicted, the government switched theories again and claimed at sentencing, without proof, that Defeer was engaged in financing terrorism. He was sentenced to 22 years. Unlike the Holy Land defendants, they're referencing another high-profile case of the Holy Land Five, whose charity was criminalized early in the 2000s, Unlike the Holy Land defendants, the government could not charge Defeer with supporting a terrorist organization like Hamas. No listed terrorist organizations existed in Iraq because Saddam Hussein would not permit it. So the government simply framed him for Medicare fraud and then called it terrorism. This is precisely what preemptive prosecution is all about, convicting people of contrived crimes for ideological reasons. And so, Defeer is now in a cell, and he is being kept in conditions of solitary confinement. And this group, Project Salam, would like anyone who is willing to support Defeer and, and perhaps advocate on his behalf, they would like anyone who can to call Brian Sincata who is a case manager for Defeer, because on June 18th, he was removed and put in a special housing unit. Project Salam says that this is related to uh, him trying to pray during Ramadan, trying to exercise his religious beliefs. So at the Federal Medical Center, Devon's, where inmates are incarcerated, and these are particularly inmates who need medical care. Ryan Sincata is there, and you can call him at 978-796-1000, dial A0, or stay on the line, 
and then give Defeer's inmate locator number, which is 11921052, and ask to speak with Mr. Sincata. You can leave him a message on his voicemail if he is not reachable. Also, you might ask for the public information officer or a member of the warden's staff. There are uh, several points that you could raise. Uh, for one, it's been more than 40 days since he has been put in solitary confinement, put in the special housing unit. Also, Project Salam says that he was working on a legal motion for his case, uh, and the deadline for completing it is in November. So he's now being kept away from his legal papers, and a good question to ask is if putting him in solitary confinement has something to do with preventing him from working on his legal case. I ask him why... Ask the prison why his right to religious expression was violated during Ramadan. And ask why he was put into the special housing unit in the first place. You know, any information that could clear that up. If you want to write to Defeer, I'm sure he would be happy to hear from any of you while he is in prison. Uh, Rafil, R-A-F-I-L. Defier, D-H-A-F-I-R, 11921-052, F-M-C Devins, Devins is D-E-V-E-N-S, Federal Medical Center, P.O. Box 879, AYER, A-Y-E-R, Massachusetts, 01432. That's his address, and uh, you could write to him and share your thoughts about his case, or offer him some words of support while he remains imprisoned and possibly kept in solitary confinement for a longer period of time. Carnage in Gaza does seem to be ongoing, and unfortunately, as it continues, we will be here to provide further updates. But in the meantime... I recommend going to follow the work of Rania Kalek as she's regularly following the developments through her Twitter account at Rania Kalek. Also, uh, go to the Electronic Intifada, their website, as well as Mondo Weiss. And these are two websites that are not allowing Israeli military propaganda to define their coverage of what is going on in Gaza, as the New York Times appears to be doing. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast.